in the United States, everybody knows that statistic. The United States has the highest maternal mortality rate of any other developed nation. And then when you when you separate out by race, black women are dying at three to four times higher rates than women, than white women for pregnancy related causes and complications. Um, women, American Indian, Alaskan Native women as well, bear the burden of maternal mortality. Welcome to the Well Child Podcast, brought to you by two board certified pediatricians, Dr. Anna Powell and Dr. Samira Arman also known as the PD Pals, as we talk to you about topics involving raising well and happy children in today's challenging society. Please follow us on social media at the PD Pals or find us online at www.thepdpals.com. Welcome back to another episode of The Well Child. Today, we are so super excited. We have a guest that we had to book out three months in advance, which means she is so important. (laughs) Her name is Dr. Jasmine Johnson. Dr. Johnson uh, was originally an OBGYN and has now subspecialized in maternal fetal medicine. She was born in Detroit, Michigan. She is a mommy. She is amazing. She is online. She has done multiple interviews, has been in the media, and a great women's advocate, um, specifically for women of color, and just has so much to offer and share. We are so excited to have her here, and we feel really blessed that she's given us a chance to talk to her and then has to come on our platform to share her story and give us all the wisdom. So welcome, Dr. Johnson. Thank you so much for having me. And as a disclaimer, I am not that important. It's just that I'm still in training and my schedule does not belong to me. So (laughs) Fair fair enough. We remember those training days and you have decided to continue them and specialize, which is amazing because we know being pediatricians that maternal fetal medicine is a challenging profession and you're having to deal with some of the most difficult cases. Um, So just to give you a quick opportunity, just tell us a little bit about yourself and our listeners and kind of what brought you to that field. Yeah. So um, as you guys said, I um, am originally from Detroit, so I'm actually the child of a physician. So I only lived in Detroit for a couple of years, but we have a lot of extended family there. And when my dad finished medical school, we went to Chicago and then um, he did his residency and we went to Northwest Indiana. So I'm kind of a Midwest girl that has kind of bounced around um, and always knew I wanted to be a physician and was really enamored with the sciences. And so went to went to undergrad at University of Michigan, knowing that I wanted to be pre-med and um unexpectedly became pregnant with my son, Nate, who's now 12 years old. Um, But that was a really formidable time in my life where I had to make the decision whether or not I was going to continue my dream of being a physician, which I really had no plan B. I had no idea what else I would be happy doing. And thankfully had a really supportive family and partner um, to continue to allow me to continue to press forward. And so started medical school with an 18-month-old. I did a year of a post-bac, so I started medical school with an 18-month-old. We had just gotten married, and one of the things that I realized when I was trying to figure out if medical school was still for me was that blogging was becoming a thing, but a lot of people weren't blogging about being a mom in professional school. So I was like, you know what? This is an opportunity to share 
what I've learned and the ups and downs. And so that's when I started the Mrs. The Mommy, the MD. And so I've continued that through medical school, residency, and now fellowship. And I'm six months away from finally having my grown-up job. Um, we'll be coming back to Indiana. I'm going to Indiana University as faculty. So that is so cool. And, you know, Anna and I have been following you for some time. And uh, I don't know if it's just because you're super relatable or if doctors are like drawn to doctors like moths to a flame, you know, they're like, yes, I understand where you're coming from. But what one thing I love about you and your story is that you have a really great way at looking at rejection. Um, mm-hmm. And you talk about it very openly. And I just love it. Like I want to bottle it up and teach it to my own kids. Can you tell our listeners if just if they haven't heard of, you know, you and whatnot, like what has been your experience with rejection and what did you learn from it at the end of the day? Absolutely. And I think one of the most eye-opening things for me when I was navigating going to medical school, so I applied to 15 schools that first time around and I got 15 rejections. Luckily, I got a letter from IU, Indiana University, saying I could do a post-bac program and then reapply to medical school. And at the time, I was so devastated by the fact that I didn't get into medical school. Um, I didn't realize that it was such an opportunity. So at that point, I had a five-month-old and I had the opportunity to take a first year of medical school classes and figure out like what it actually means to be a medical student and learn the rigor of like studying and focusing with a child. And I really wasn't ready for medical school the first time around. And so, you know, now I see that so many people took this roundabout way to medical school. A lot of people don't go straight through, but I didn't see it that way at the time. And so I say now rejection is God's protection. Like if I had gotten into medical school that first time around, I'm pretty sure like I did not have the skill set to like focus and be the student that I needed to be. Um, And so being able to see what you can learn from not getting everything you want right away. I think that it was a big year for me to kind of grow and mature and be a good mom and figure out how I could balance or integrate it all because there's no such thing as balance. Um, But yes, I am very candid about everybody doesn't get everything they want the first time. And I think that, you know, telling that story frees other people to make mistakes because I think that a lot of people don't realize that, a lot of people don't go to medical school the first time they apply. And there are so many other ways to look at that rejection as something that kind of pushes you forward to your dream. So I'm glad that I'm glad that that resonates. Yeah, (laughs) that's awesome. That's so inspiring. And it's something that we talk to our teenage patients out about all the time, because we see these teenagers and they're so impressionable and then they're on social media and, and, and these people are role models to them, you know, and, and they need real role models. They need the failures. They need the people that have done well or worked hard and have gone through that journey. So that's really inspiring um, to, to have those role models on social media because, you know, I, we see teen depression, anxiety, the stress of life, the stress of doing well in school and, you know, moving on to a graduate level work, it really weighs down uh, on these mm-hmm. young kids. So that's really amazing that you have made it your mission to be open about it. That's really, really amazing. And and kind of the, the flaw in comparison, you know, we're always, especially with social media, and I know that teens have it especially hard. You're seeing someone's highlight reel, you're seeing what they want you to see. Mm-hmm. And you don't see that, like, there were so many things that happened before this picture where I graduated. Um, and, and that has been my mission in that 
you know, I don't want people to think they can't do it just because they were rejected 15 times. Honestly, like, (laughs) um, I just, you know, there's, there's no valor in pretending like everything was perfect. And so I'm glad that, that, that you appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it it is, as Anna said, so inspiring and so true. And what is the point in hiding it? Um, You learn so much from it. You grew. And then in hindsight, I love that you say like rejection is God's protection or it's just protection, you know, And, and that's such a healthy way to look at it. And we are in a society where we don't, we feel like there's only one way to do everything. And we set everyone up for these really high expectations. And that's not the way it should go at all. No two people live the same life. There's no way that that would ever happen. Um, You just have different circumstances, different environments, different personalities, genes, everything, right? Now this stuff like plays into it, but yet we all think we all have to follow that exact same path. Everyone has to be a mom at the same time, at the right, Right. there's no right and wrong in all of this. And I agree with you. I had the same thing. You know, if I hadn't been rejected from med school, I never would have met my husband. Mm. Never, you know? There's just no way a Canadian girl and a Texan could have met in any other <laughs> so, <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. So, definitely- um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what maternal fetal medicine is? Because I, I really do want to delve into that a little bit too. Yeah. So maternal fetal medicine is a subspecialty of obstetrics and gynecology. So we do our four years of residency in OBGYN. And so then at that point you could go and practice or you can subspecialize. So there are a bunch of different, like, I'd say flavors of OBGYN, so to speak. And so my flavor of OBGYN is I'm just taking care of um, patients who are pregnant or contemplating pregnancy and like may come into a pregnancy with a high risk condition. So um, things like high blood pressure or diabetes, you know, that makes you have a high risk pregnancy. And so you would see a maternal fetal medicine specialist, or we take care of conditions that are diagnosed during pregnancy that then make it high risk. And sometimes those conditions have to do with the fetus or the baby. So um, we get extra training in ultrasound and diagnosis of birth defects. Um, If you think about like twin pregnancy or multiples, that's high risk. And so maternal fetal medicine gets involved. And um, in some circumstances, we even have like extra training and procedures so that if if a fetus has something that needs to be treated in utero, um, th- we are able to be the, the specialist that intervenes. So it's a, a really cool specialty in that I get to participate in like one of the most exciting parts of what I thought, you know, my residency training was, but also it's really sciencey. And so I was someone who loved every rotation in med school and it's allowed me to like do internal medicine and also do women's health and adolescent medicine and like talk about all the things. So it's been great. It's not enough for you that they're just pregnant. It has to be be more. I mean, as you can see, the theme of my life is like, make it harder. (laughs) (laughs) You know what's funny? When you were talking about this, I was thinking, um, I remember because, you know, as doctors, and just this is for the audience more than anyone, but as doctors, you know, we, we do because we all went through med school. We do obviously know more about each other's specialties than the average person would. And I had, you had yours young. I had my first when I was 30. And I remember I, I glanced at my chart or it was on my chart or something happened where it was like advanced maternal age. And I was like, excuse me. (laughs) 30 is not advanced maternal age. (laughs) No, but yes. 
<laughs> yeah. So, I mean, a lot of our, our listeners, you know, they are, they're first time moms or they're thinking about uh, getting pregnant again, and they might've had some of these complications in the past. Um, are there any tips that you've noticed going through this special training um, on what moms can do if they want to conceive again, and they've had a complication like diabetes or high blood pressure? Is there something that they should be doing? Um, you know, if that's something they're considering, or, or should they come and talk to you sooner uh, before they actually get pregnant? What are your thoughts? That's an, yeah, that's an excellent question. So, um, you know, we see patients in pregnancy, but you can come see me before you get pregnant. If you're thinking about getting pregnant, I think one of the the things that I always tell my patients when they've had a complicated pregnancy before is that it's great to schedule a visit with us to just like kind of powwow, kind of recap what happened last time, whether there were things that might have been preventable um, and what we can do to like set you up for success the next time around. You know, some things just happen, but some things like diabetes or high blood pressure, like you can absolutely optimize your medication management. You can make sure that you're on blood pressure medications that wouldn't cause birth defects. All of those things are very important. And so if you have a pre-existing condition, especially if you're taking medication for it, getting in with a maternal fetal medicine specialist to talk about those conditions and also how they may change during pregnancy. So blood pressure is harder to control. Blood sugars are harder, harder to control as you get further along. And so these are things that I, I think that most people would want to know going into a pregnancy. And just so that you can, even if you don't think you are, you would be a high-risk pregnancy, you can know that upfront. Um, other things like preterm birth, we absolutely want you, if you've had a history of a preterm delivery for any reason to come talk to us, because there are some things we can do to intervene. Um, and we work very closely with our neonatologist or, you know, the, the doctors that are in charge of the NICU where the premature babies go. Um, and prematurity is something that is huge in the field of maternal fetal medicine, but particularly for me as someone who researches health disparities, it's something that disproportionately affects black women. And so a lot of patients don't realize like what preterm birth is, like how early a baby has to be born for it to classify as preterm birth and also like what can be done to prevent it. And so absolutely, there's so many opportunities to at least have some anticipation of like what to expect in pregnancy with, with, um, a high-risk pregnancy history. Yeah, that is, that's really helpful information because I think a lot of moms will go to their general provider, you know, their family doctor, and, um, and you have that specialty where, you know, they've struggled through this in a previous pregnancy, and now you can really help them fine tune that, you know? And so mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of people don't know that that resource is available to them. Um, but something you just said about, um, the healthcare, the the disparities. Um, that's something that you know we were we were girl crushing on you because when we were looking at some of the work you've done in looking at these racial disparities and disparities amongst the different socioeconomic um, areas of society, that's something that we're really passionate about too because we see these disparities not only being women, being women of color, you know, in medicine, uh, but something that a lot of women struggle with. Um, um, whether it's getting access to healthcare, preterm uh, deliveries, like you mentioned, but mm -hmm. we would love any insight on, on all the research you've done and what you've kind of found uh, through your research regarding disparities. Yeah. And, and it's so important. I'm, I love that we're having this conversation in a pediatric setting because 
what happens to mom directly affects that family. And so keeping that kind of paramount when we think about like policy and things that we're doing to improve healthcare and access for women. Um, but specifically for me, so um, when I started residency, I really didn't think I was going to like have this research career, but really kind of fell in love with the process of using data to then affect change. And it was a way for me to like put science and evidence behind the things that I felt really passionate about. And so um, what what drew me to this issue when I was in residency, we lost a mom and, and she was a young black mother who was from a rural area who was had health literacy, had a chronic condition, but there was just so much about her life and her care, even in like the best of setting where we had all these teams taking care of her and all these meetings about the best plan of care for her and her baby, we couldn't save her. And, and that sticks with me and really carried me through like the work that I did after that. So specifically looking at maternal mortality in the United States, everybody knows that statistic. The United States has the highest maternal mortality rate of any other developed nation. And then when you when you separate out by race, black women are dying at three to four times higher rates than women than white women for pregnancy related causes and complications. Um, women, American Indian, Alaska Native women as well, bear the burden of maternal mortality. And then when you think about reasons why, so you talked about socioeconomic status, you know, historically, people have said, well, communities of color don't have access to care or maybe of lower socioeconomic status or may not um, get to the doctor in time, may not have insurance. And some of the studies we've done at our institution um, have disproven that, you know, we've looked at women just of a high socioeconomic status cohort, which, you know, we just defined it the way the best we could based on like birth certificate data, but basically women who had private insurance, went to prenatal care in the first trimester, had greater than 16 years of education, weren't on government assistance. And what we saw is that the same disparity in preterm birth was seen in that cohort too. So Black women still had higher rates of preterm birth, even when they did everything right. And I say that in quotes, but because protective factors for Black women are not the same for women of other races. Unfortunately, we don't get, see the benefit of like having insurance or having education. Um, black women with a college degree have a higher maternal mortality rate than white women who haven't graduated from high school. And I think that that speaks to, it's deeper than just access. It's deeper than just socioeconomic status. Um, and thankfully, we're moving away from those things being seen as a cause. Um, and thinking about like what it means to be black in this country, what it means to be a person of color in this country and how racism impacts not only your experience in the hospital, but also like before you even get to your doctor, there's stress on your body you may not have access to the same employment opportunities, food opportunities, schools, and, and all of that plays a role in our health. And so moving forward from fellowship, I'm going to continue to look at racism's impact on health, but that's that's my soapbox primer. <laughs> I have so many questions. I mean, yeah. that was like so, first of all, amazing, but also like, I just have so many questions and I don't mean to make it cliche. I'm going to start like one at a time. I'm going to ask you all of them at the same time, but um, I don't mean to make it cliche, but when you were talking about this, I just, first of all, such important issues. I'm so happy, like people like you exist that are really shedding Thank light you. on this type of stuff because it's just so important. And it's so important also to change the narrative 
And, and I think that's amazing that you're doing that, but you're using data and facts to push the change in the narrative. Otherwise, unfortunately, the way that our society is, everyone just says, well, it's just your opinion. And just a story. Right, exactly. And then they right. tend to give their opinion. I'm going to use a high profile case, though, because I think that even though I don't me- I don't mean to use this high profile case to not um, to kind of devalue the situation. I think that she is so well known and um, people who are listening to this podcast will relate to this story. And you're, you're shaking your head in a way that I'm like, she already does have a good time. Um, but Serena Williams um, yes. had a pregnancy complication and um, she tells the story really well and basically talks about her struggles in seeking and getting care when she was pregnant. This is a, again, high profile person, very wealthy, um, you would think has a lot of quote unquote privilege given her, you know, status in society, right? And and her complications when she tells the story were because she wasn't believed uh, mm-hmm. when she was presenting with the symptoms, which like gives me rage actually. When you hear her story and this woman is walking in with shortness of breath and keep they keep telling her it's just the pregnancy, like oh my god, <laughs> just look for a PE, she's pregnant. Um, exactly. Oh, so. so is that part of what you're uncovering? Absolutely. So I, I love that in the past, like five years or so, celebrities have stepped up, you know, thank God for Serena Williams telling her story. Beyonce also talks about her experience with preeclampsia. So I reference Beyonce in every presentation I possibly can. And, mm-hmm. and so, yes. Um, but, but I think that like, it also speaks to the fact that they have power and there's privilege that they have. And so they're able to have these platforms. And we think about all of the patients that don't have the the platform and who have providers not listen to them and bad outcomes, and we never know about them. And so um, another, another well-known to like the MFM circuit, which I think that her mom is doing a lot of advocacy now um, with the CDC, but Dr. Shalon Irving worked in the CDC, did research on maternal mortality, had insurance. She was a PhD and her preeclampsia symptoms were ignored and she had a stroke and died. And, and, and I think that there's a bigger issue here, similar to how I mentioned, you know, we can't just explain things away because of you know, comorbid conditions or socioeconomic status, you know, there are a number of studies, including one that I've been involved in, where we looked at pain management differences after a cesarean delivery, after a routine operation that a lot of women have in pregnancy. um, We saw that Black women had higher pain scores. However, their pain wasn't assessed as frequently as women of other races. And specifically, white women got more pain medication, even though they had lower pain scores than black women. They got more narcotic pain medication, more ibuprofen and more Tylenol. And I don't understand where the discrepancy is other than calling it what it is. It's bias and it's racism. And it's not, not validating when someone says I'm in pain or I need medication or just not even assessing their pain because one patient is seen as more valuable than another. And so um, it, like you exactly said, these stories are so important. The stories, the personal accounts are so important, but I think because this is such a structural and systemic issue, we need the data. Right. And it's, it's really just a part of the fabric of the society, you know, and, and with black lives matter and with all the attention that that's getting, 
Now people are bringing that to the forefront, you know, talking about these disparities. But Mm -hmm. the reason me and Sammy really wanted to do this podcast was because we wanted to talk about health and wellness, which is just beyond the, the visits, you know, the visits that we see them for 15, 20 minutes in the office. I mean, it has to do so much with the fabric of society, with socioeconomic status, with disparities, with racism, you know? And unless I think we have healthcare professionals like you really um, bringing awareness and talking about it and also checking their internal bias, which, you know, comes naturally because of the society that we're part of, unless we recognize that there's no way it's going to change, you know? And that's what this conversation excites me so much because, because it's so needed. It's so needed because moms themselves are not aware of their privilege or lack thereof. Um, They're not aware of what they need to do, um, especially in the healthcare setting. A lot of times, um, you know, we tell moms, if you're concerned, you know, we're concerned. You, You have to speak up. You have to trust your gut and you have to, you know, if you're experiencing something, you have to speak up regardless of what you know, socioeconomic status you are, but, uh, no. exactly. And, and it's crazy because our nation spends so much money on healthcare. Mm-hmm. And yet when we have an encounter with a provider that we don't feel comfortable with, or that you feel like they're not listening to you for some reason, our, our culture is that we just accept that and we continue that, that provider patient relationship that is uncomfortable. And when I say culture, I mean like as a society in America. And so I feel like more often than not just telling someone like, it is okay to like change your OB doctor. If you feel like they aren't listening to you. Uh Yes. It's inconvenient. It's inconvenient to like transfer records and to find someone new, but like I would much rather you do that than stay with someone that you think is not listening to you. Because if there's a complication and you already feel like there's a wall, like I I just, it breaks my heart. And so absolutely similar to how you empower parents. If you, like they used to say in the airport, if you see something, say something. If someone is not giving you the respect that you deserve and the care that is appropriate, Bye. Like you need to go. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Advice ever, right there. Mm-hmm. Because I think it's something that people don't realize. People often feel like they are stuck with the doctor that they've been assigned, or they're stuck with the doctor that's in their community. And mm-hmm. and now you know it. Yes, doctors are always going to be busy, and there's always a shortage and whatnot. But now more than ever, this is the time to do that. And you know it's. Yeah. It's so, there's so many levels, right? It's like almost like an onion. You peel it, like just in how a woman gets treated versus a man when they're seeking medical care. Like that already, there's a, there's a huge discrepancy. And then you keep adding the layers. You know, if you add a woman of color, then they have even more challenges and it just keeps going and going. And I think it's so important. A woman of color is most likely going to mesh well with another woman of color as her physician. Uh, and not only it's not a meshing thing, but will most likely be heard. Um, I, you know, personally, my, my own experience has been in the past, you know, we all have health problems, right? We all have stuff. And I had, I had challenges (laughs) being understood by male doctors Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I'm a doctor, (laughs) you know? So it was for me, like, what is happening, you know? And then, and then very quickly being disenchanted with our healthcare system and then and then you suddenly become inspired after a while to make a difference and a change just like yourself. Absolutely. 
So I'm, I am curious, since I said I had a million questions, this is another one, changing gears a tiny bit, but what has your experience been with this whole thing in COVID? It has, it's been a whirlwind, yeah. as I'm sure everyone, everyone said. So the biggest change for us was we mobilized into telehealth, which I'm sure you guys have experienced too, but you would think that like prenatal visits all have to be in person, but they actually don't, you know, our governing body of like society for maternal fetal medicine and the college of obstetrics and gynecology, you know, they basically convened and decided what was a safe number of visits that could be virtual. And when you have a high risk pregnancy, it's a little bit different. Less of those visits can be virtual, but that has been really cool. Cause I think that like as crazy as this pandemic has been, it's been really cool to like see your patients in their natural habitat, you know, to see, to see where they live and patients apologizing for their dog barking when it's totally fine. Like, you know, I'm doing telehealth at my kitchen table and my dog's barking too. And it's, it makes things more relatable. I think that it humanizes the interaction, even though there's distance, um, some of the not so great things. So for a while, we weren't allowing a, a person to come with you for like your ultrasounds and, and your prenatal visits that were in person. And so that was another time where I think it's really important to make sure that if you don't feel empowered to like speak up or interrupt or ask questions that you like have your partner or your advocate on FaceTime during a visit, you know, that's not intrusive to the doctor. It shouldn't be. Um, and it's something that I try and encourage but that, that is a new experience, obviously. And patients have been really, really concerned with not having a support person. Thankfully, in the hospital, they've been able to have at least one support person with them. And then the PPE, I'm, I'm a very like emotional and animated person, if you haven't noticed already. And so like masks really like make me sad. <laughs> I'm going to wear them, but it's sad that like we can't see smiles. And, and when things aren't so great, having those like visual cues that somebody's with you and hearing you. Um, and then other than that, you know, people are still having babies. And so mm -hmm. honestly, things never slowed down for us on labor and delivery. My calls have always been busy. We are having an onslaught of like pandemic babies now. So it's even busier than it was before. Um, and I think that that was really good, like in the midst of everything being so bad, the fact that like when you were on call, people were still having babies and it was still a joyous occasion, even though we had to do all these crazy things that we hadn't had to do before. And it kind of like brings you back and say, okay, this is why I'm doing this. I'm able to support this person through this amazing part of their life. Um, even though we're in the midst of a pandemic and so much loss is happening around us, it, it's really great to still be a part of that. So have you had a lot of mothers who have had COVID, like pregnant women, and, and has that made them a candidate for MFM or have they, for the most part, done well? I'm just curious of your side. Yeah, so we definitely have had a lot of women who have had COVID in pregnancy and pregnancy is considered a high risk condition by the CDC. So if you are pregnant and you get COVID, um, you are more likely to experience severe disease than someone who's not pregnant, need to be intubated, need to go to the ICU. And so we have a mix. We have a mix of patients who have really severe disease. And, and we're talking about preterm delivery to help mom, mom's oxygenation. Um, then we have patients who are asymptomatic and are just in labor. And we find out through their like screening test. And so it, it's a mix. Um, we are still, we are still you know, in full COVID mode and making sure that like our, our PPE is there. And a lot of times 
we find out after the fact that a patient has COVID and they may not necessarily know. Um, but as far as like my experience, it's probably a mixed bag. Like a lot of the, um, a lot of the labor delivery units across the country. One of the things, and just to not to get back on my disparity soapbox, but one of the things that we have observed similar to the rest of the country is that our Latinx population is disproportionately affected by COVID. And so those are the families that when we were in the height of the pandemic, it was it, it seemed to always be communities of color, people of color um, that were most affected and our patients that were incarcerated. So again, just the most vulnerable people in our society um, bearing the brunt of this pandemic. Thankfully, I feel like we're on the downs, downside of our curve and with the vaccine, everybody's really encouraged. But you're right, sorry to long answer to your question. Having COVID in pregnancy, especially severe disease and symptomatic COVID, MFM, that's, we get involved. Yeah, that's been really our experiencing. It's been very unpredictable because we see moms in the, you know, when they come in with their newborns and we've seen some that have been really, really sick and others as if nothing changed, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the, it is very difficult to counsel parents, you know, because it's really hard to know with COVID as we're still gathering this data um, for a lot of the moms that are either pregnant or they're thinking about getting pregnant. What are your thoughts about the vaccine? I was just curious. Yeah, so we recommend the vaccine to anyone who's considering pregnancy. Um, and a lot of our societies have, in a, as a unified front, looked at the data that we have. So, you know, this is a new vaccine. However, we know vaccine technology. We know the science behind the mRNA vaccine. There's no evidence to support that it would affect fertility, or affect a growing pregnancy. Um, and the data so far has been, again, re very reassuring in that women who got pregnant during the trials um, unintentionally, their pregnancy outcomes were just fine. And then I think to date, we've had thousands of women who have gotten the vaccine since, um, since it was approved for emergency use. And those pregnancy outcomes are no different than women who had pregnancies and didn't have the vaccine. So we absolutely encourage um, our patients to get the vaccine and have an informed decision, an informed decision making with their provider. So, you know, things to take into account your risk of exposure. So, if you're in healthcare or in a frontline position where you're you're high risk to being exposed to COVID, if you have comorbid conditions, so those things we talked about before, like diabetes and high blood pressure or an autoimmune thing, um, all of those things put you at a higher risk for severe disease and COVID. And then, um, you know, what I always say, like, what do we know about COVID and pregnancy, all those terrible things that COVID can do to pregnant women. And so I think that the vaccine has been proven to be safe. And so we absolutely support it if someone's considering it. Yeah, that's very um, encouraging to hear it from your mouth, you know, since you've done all the <laughs> research and you take care of the, the most high risk patients. But I thought of something completely off topic. We actually recently um, did an episode about postpartum care. And I was just curious, and, and it's another area where we notice a lot of disparities for, uh, for women in general, because in the prenatal period, they get visit after visit, they get access to care a lot easier. Um, and then in the postpartum care, they're just like, good luck, <laughs> have a nice day, you know, and, and we learned recently that preeclampsia can present, you know, up until six weeks later or beyond. And um, a lot of these complications that women deal with 
during pregnancy, but then also right after. And so I was just curious how maternal fetal medicine um, plays a role. Do you continue to see these women postpartum or do they go back to their, you know, original OB or how does that work? That is an excellent question. And after this, after your listeners listen to this podcast, I want them to email their policymakers. So this is another soapbox I have. Um, Absolutely. So we, we do the postpartum visit um, and ACOG. So our like governing body for obstetrics and gynecology um, revamped prenatal care. So we call it the fourth trimester to try and get people to think of it as not this separate entity, but it's still a part of the pregnancy, a very vital part. Um, And it's a time when you're not only managing life with this new human, but also like mood changes, postpartum depression, you might have some residual complications from your pregnancy, um, contraception and family planning for the future. If you're interested in that, all of those things are so important. Unfortunately, most insurance companies typically only cover you up to about six weeks postpartum. So Medicaid, for example, after your six week visit, you can't come back and see me. And a lot of our patients, um, cause we see a lot of patients where Medicaid is their only insurance during their pregnancy, and then they lose it after six weeks. And so if you wanted to go see your family practice doctor, a lot of patients are choosing between dinner and like whatever it's going to cost to go see a physician to continue their care. And so one of the things that we have been talking to our policymakers about in Washington is expanding Medicaid to 12 months postpartum because six weeks is not enough. Six weeks is not enough for you to get the follow-up you need, especially when you've had a complicated pregnancy. But also what we know about maternal mortality is that up to a third of deaths actually happen in the postpartum period. And, and so we are doing women a disservice by ending their coverage at six weeks and thinking about postpartum care stopping at six weeks. So um, I do postpartum visits. If, if you have a high-risk condition, Sometimes we're able to squeeze in more follow-up, but we have got to do a better job of bridging the transition from your OB provider to your your primary care person. And that's something that I'm hoping is going to change in the next next administration. It's a it's a huge gap in the system. And it's something that we see because we're trying to support moms. We're trying to support their we're trying to see their babies and take care of them, yeah. but also support them. And we just don't have the resources for them and we don't have the training to be able to support them and all the complications that they could potentially deal with. So we're, our, our hands are tied. So yes, I love policy. Exactly. <laughs> and there's, there are some like innovative things. I remember one day I was in clinic and I got a call from a pediatrician and she was like frantic because they were doing mood screening, postpartum mood screening in their clinic at the newborn visits. And this mom scored really, really high. And we were able to get her in to see me immediately and get her the support she needed. Like that is what we need for everybody. And I know that like most offices do not have the resources to be screening moms and making sure the baby has what they need. And so we need more support from the people that move the money so that we can do things like that. Cause you know, also it's kind of a burden on moms to like have to go to a different place for their postpartum visit. And of course they're going to go get their baby's visits done. And so we have to figure out how to like make it less difficult to get to prioritize their, their health too. Man, you nailed it on the head and Anna's right too, right? Because What we see often is 
moms will lose their Medicaid, the baby will still have Medicaid. So they are coming to all of their mm-hmm. baby's appointments and getting their baby's vaccines. And they see us really frequently. They see us after birth at two weeks, four weeks, and then eight yeah. weeks. And then I remember. <laughs> right. So they see us a lot. And we are, you know, you're right. We look at the baby. We want to make sure the baby's taken care of and healthy, but you cannot ignore when a mom is clearly having issues. I mean, honestly, because the babies don't talk. <laughs> My, I always open uh, the visits, especially the one right after birth with how are you? <laughs> and how are you mm-hmm. feeling? Are you recovering? Especially if it was a C-section, I'm like, good God, that is a major surgery. We don't talk right? about that enough. It is a major surgery. Yes. You have to breastfeed. <laughs> like what? You know, I mean, it's just so hard. And so we, we talk about that a lot, but as Anna said, uh, we're not super equipped. I mean, we, <laughs> We have a really big deal of experience when it comes to mental health disorders with children and teenagers, but it it really, I mean, kids really are so different from adults. It's different. It's similar to like when someone asks me about their baby in a visit, I'm like, oh, I I don't know. (laughs) I had one. (laughs) Right. I'm like, I'm giving you advice as a mother, not as a physician. And one of my attendings, she says she's really into like policy and advocacy for women's health. And she to like put into perspective how we treat women in our society. So we treat pregnant women like a candy and a wrapper. And once the candy or the baby comes out, we discard the wrapper. We don't care about moms the way we should. Um, And so it's, it needs, we just need to like uproot the system and rework it because, you know, this is timely that it's, women's month (laughs) that, that we're talking about this because, you know, so many, so many things that we do in America do not prioritize women and do not, do not put value where it should be. And so to change gears a little bit, um, I, cause we, I feel like we could talk to you forever. Yeah. We, this is fun. Yeah, <laughs> so thank you for it. Um, I know this is not really your specialty, but I feel like so many times, you know, Anna and I will say like, we're pediatricians. Oh, we didn't realize we were also like sociology experts. It's just like where you sit, you just end up seeing, uh, you know, things from a different view, right? Like it's a little mm-hmm. bit of a bird's eye thing. So for, from where you sit, I know fertility is not really your expertise and you're more of like the maternal fetal medicine, but have you noticed anything? Fertility has become such a big struggle, um, something that didn't used to be. Have you noticed anything or do you have any like observations or tips that you could provide to moms that are looking to get pregnant in order to maximize their chances of success? Yeah. So the big things to like make sure you maximize your chance of, of having a healthy pregnancy. We always say as soon as you think you're going to start trying to conceive, start taking a prenatal vitamin because the folic acid in that vitamin um, helps the baby's brain and spinal cord develop normally long before you even have a positive pregnancy test. Um, if there's anything that's like a pre-existing condition, optimizing those conditions before you get pregnant. So things like getting your, your hemoglobin A1C, if you have diabetes at goal, making sure your blood pressure is controlled, um, maintaining a healthy weight and making sure that if you're using tobacco or heavy alcohol use, like those things you scale down, preferably stop. Um, and so those are probably like the general recommendations that we would give. And then similar to, um, patients not realizing that they have a high risk pregnancy. I think that sometimes that's where the disconnect there, there is a lot of disconnect in like when you should seek 
consultation for difficulty trying to conceive. So we usually say if you were under age 35 and you've been trying to conceive for a year, you need to go see a physician. Um, if you're over 35 and you've been trying to conceive for six months, you need to go see a physician. So I think that right there, especially um, especially something I see in the black community, like they, we don't realize that like we're, that's something that's not normal. And so getting intervention soon is really important. Um, the other thing I would say, similar to this wonderful podcast that you guys put out to dispel misinformation, there's so much misinformation out there. And so getting really good sources about like your body and, what it means to have a normal menstrual cycle and like what it means to ovulate because all of those things, there's so much that needs to go right for a pregnancy to occur, even though like all those campaigns about like safe sex would make you think that it's so easy. It's actually not very easy to like get pregnant at baseline, even if you don't have any high risk conditions. And so educating yourself on like what needs to happen and like the optimal settings and uh, in addition to kind of optimizing your own health outside of pregnancy and making sure that you're kind of setting the stage for a good environment. But I think the big thing I would say is just making sure that if things have gone long enough where it kind of bumps you into that category where you should talk to your OBGYN. So you can go to your general OBGYN and talk to them about the issues you're having so that we can make sure that you have intervention in a timely fashion. That's, that's really great advice. Actually, I think you summed up <laughs> all of that really well. That's, that's amazing. Great. <laughs> we, could, we could totally talk to you all day long and, you know, talk, uh, talk your ear off probably, but I know you're a busy mom and a busy doctor. So in the interest of time, we'll, we won't take up all your time, but before we wrap it up, do you have any, you know, pieces of advice, pearls of wisdom, just one thing that if parents could take away or moms could take away from this, um, you know, what would that be and, um, and where they can find you and get more information? Yeah. Ooh, one piece of advice. Well, that's hard because I'm a talker. Um, so yeah, I was going to say similar to like what I tell my patients that ask me about their kids. This is my advice as a, as a mother, obviously I have my doctor hat too, but we, we are all doing the best we can and we have to give ourselves grace with what we have to work with. And, and I think the pandemic amplifies that in that, like right now I'm really struggling with like screen time and my kids being on screens all the time. And a lot of times I'm like, Oh, I need to be doing this, this, and this to like get them away from the video games and the iPads. But like, what, what else we're in a pandemic, like <laughs> give yourself some grace there. It is going to be okay. And I think that we are so busy again, comparing ourselves to others and what we think the perfect parent looks like that we kind of lose sight of like the fact that our kids don't need the perfect parent. They just need us and they need us to be present in the moments that we can be present in. And so I would say, my advice is to stop scrutinizing everything that you do. And I'm saying this advice, like, I need to follow my own advice. <laughs> stop scrutinizing everything you do and just, you know, enjoy where you are and the time that you have with your kids. Cause it's flying by my son's 12, my daughter's seven. And we, I'd say this last year has been crazy, but at the same time, it's been great to be able to like pause and 
actually see my kids and see them for who they are and the little people that they're growing into. And, and so I don't want to forget like what I've taken away from this experience in the pandemic. And I hope that other parents can too. That made me like emotional. I was going to cry. Like, oh, that's so true. Such good advice. And also I really relate to you because my kids are similar ages. I've got a seven and 11 year old. And I also feel like that's a sweet spot in the age, like before they're about to turn into teenagers, but they're like semi-independent. So it really is like a time where you're like, I just want to bottle this up. So it's really kind of lucky that we got to have this extra time with them. Exactly. Exactly. But that was wonderful advice. Can you let everyone know? Because I know they're going to be like, where can I see more about (laughs) Dr. Johnson and what she's doing and her mission? Where can they find you? Yeah. So you can find me. My blog is www.mrsmommymd.com. And then Instagram is probably where I'm most active right now. So the same handle, Mrs. Mommy MD. And I answer messages, just it might take me a while. (laughs) Well, we love this conversation. Thank you so much for taking time out. And hopefully we can keep connected. Stay, stay Absolutely. Connected and, and have more of these um, awesome discussions in the future, hopefully. Thank you guys. And thank you so much for having the show and prioritizing this topic. It, it really means a lot. And it's so important to like change, change what we've been seeing in the past. So thank you. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any other agency, hospital, organization, employer, or company. Assumptions made in the analysis are not reflective of the position of any entity other than the participants. The participants are critically thinking human beings. Therefore, these views are always subject to change, revision, reconsideration, and recalculation at any time. This podcast collaboration makes no warranties or representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, suitability, or validity of any information, communication, exchange, and the participants will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information, or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its broadcast dissemination or use. All information is provided on an as-is basis. It is the communication recipient's responsibility to verify any facts.